Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm very excited for today's guest. He is Lucas Kuntz, and he is taking on Josh Hawley for Missouri's Senate seat. We'll get to him in a second, but thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. And don't forget to stick around to the end of this episode for our special surprise celebrity closing. So here's a little feedback from this past week. On our episode with uh, former MAGA cult member Pam Hempel, Taffy Fantasia said, Interviews like this just give me so much hope. Your demeanor brought out the kindness in Ms. Hempel, and it was just so interesting to learn what goes on in the minds of these people. Thanks, Taffy. Linda Racine, also same segment, she said one at a time, meaning one MAGA person at a time, which is a really great point. And uh, Mocha Joe, Severio Guerra episode, his co-star Cheryl Hines said, I love Severio. Uh, We do too. All right, that gets us to our two big things, and we're going to actually have an honorary mention today. So it's technically three big things. First is Trump. He's always a big thing. I know. Trump, (laughs) Trump, Trump. He's a big thing. And I'm not just talking about his grossly obese body. Um, Chris Christie, the pugilist from New Jersey, was out there hitting hard on Twitter and in interviews. If you and Trump got in the ring, he loves his UFC and stuff like that, right? If you got in the octagon, you and him, who'd who'd win? Come on. Guy's 78 years old. I'd kick his ass. (laughs) I gotta say, I've been waiting several years for somebody to literally use those words to say, I'm gonna kick Trump's ass. Most of the other people in the Republican Party, all they wanna do is lick Trump's ass. Uh, so there was a bunch of interesting news this week on Trump. Fulton County, Georgia seated two new grand juries, one of which is a standard grand jury, which means it has authority to approve indictment because so far the only grand jury was a special grand jury which only a- analyzed the evidence and made recommendations. So this is really interesting, and it could signal that there's an actual indictment coming, which we've been waiting for July slash August, and hopefully that is, that is coming. Biden won by 73% in Fulton County, Georgia, in uh, 2020. So that's an interesting stat. That's why they wanted to throw all the votes out in Fulton County. Yeah. And then moving over to another legal quandary of Trump's over in Florida... The stolen classified documents case, his lawyers filed a motion to delay the trial until after the election because there's so many, quote, complex legal issues that need to be worked out. But Special Counsel Jack Smith said, fuck that. So we're waiting from Judge Cannon to see what her ruling is going to be on that. Yeah, Jack Smith really wrote an incredible piece. I would recommend everyone read it because his response to Trump's lawyers is pretty amusing. Department of Justice reversed course and said that it will no longer defend Trump in the E. Jean Carroll rape and defamation case. That's interesting because he doesn't deserve immunity because, you know, I guess raping a woman and then defaming her is not technically part of the job requirements of the United States president. But that's just me. I mean, under Trump's administration, it might well have been. It was with Bill Barr. Jared Kushner, boy wonder, friend of the Saudis, testifying to the January 6th grand jury. Interesting. I think that signals also that Jack Smith might be getting really close to an indictment in the J6 case. Well, he's trying to show that Trump knew that he lost the election, in which case he was lying and broke the law by, you know, saying that he didn't win. Right. Now let's talk about an actual president, a real president. We're talking about Fran Drescher. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Joe Biden. She actually is a pretty good president, too, of SAG-AFTRA. Joe Biden was in Europe for the NATO summit. And uh, let's play what he had to say. After nearly a year and a half of Russia's forces committing terrible atrocities, including crimes against humanity, the people of Ukraine remain unbroken. Unbroken. Putin still doubts our staying power. He's still making a bad bet that the conviction and the unity among the United States and our allies and partners will break down. He still doesn't understand that our commitment, our values, our freedom is something he can never, never, ever, ever walk away from. 
It's who we are. So that's Joe Biden. That's what you call leader of the free world, commander in chief of the world's most powerful military. Speaking about an ally, Ukraine, an enemy, Putin and Russia. But let's go back five years, almost, I think, to the day, five years to the day uh, in 2018. Here is a fake-ass president in Helsinki. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. First of all, you wouldn't know why he would. Like, okay, how about he's our number one enemy, okay? How about he tried to steal our election? How about he's a fucking liar and a former spy? What a dumbass thing to say. Um, So there you have an amazing contrast, just five years apart, of a real leader of the free world and a traitor, the Manchurian president. There you go again. Russia, Russia, (laughs) Russia. Sure. Someone should just loop that to like a like a Skrillex beat, you know. The economy, binomics. I tell you, people, it's on fire. The economy, GDP, record job growth. It's a winner every week, really. Inflation coming down. It's coming down, folks. I mean that. I mean that. I'm being serious. <laughs> I mean, the economy is on fucking fire. The, the housing market is on fire. The stock market is on fire. Everything's on fire. And it's like, we got to get rid of Joe Biden. He's destroying America. So let me ask you, how do you take that fake ass president who said what he did about Putin? And that's that's what stays in people's head. Right. So how do you how do the Democrats make this progress and this positivity stick in people's head? I need to know. Tell me. You can't because it has to it has to get through this. I hate black and brown people. That's why they love Trump. That's it, period. So they don't hear anything else. Just attacks on black people, brown people. And uh, hey, yeah, trans, gays. Let's get rid of them. They're not looking for policy. They're looking for grievance. It comes back to racism. And the cult. Well, the the racism is such a strong draw that it draws them into the cult. Yep. You know? Okay, but I'm talking talking points for Democrats. Like democracy. Pos- like positivity. Like democracy. Come on, let's go. It's about democracy. It's about democracy, saving democracy. Nothing else matters. If you don't have a democracy, you don't fucking need to talk about green energy or abortion or religious freedom or anything else because you're going to have nothing. You're going to have a dictator who tells you what to fucking do day and night. In your house, in your bedroom, in your office, wherever. Democracy, period. Stops and starts with democracy. That's the talking point. Good. You heard it here first. Thank you. Honorable mention, Leslie Van Houten. For those of you who don't know who she is, she was one of the Manson girls. When she was 19 years old, back in August of 1969, she and Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel and Charlie Manson himself, they went to the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca two nights after they slaughtered, although I got to say Leslie Van Houten was not at the Sharon Tate home, so she was not involved in that. But because she wasn't there, Charlie said to the others, take her with you to this one. And they told her to, to do something when she was there. And what did she do? She stabbed Rosemary LaBianca in the back 16 times. Well, to make a long story short, she's spent the last 50 plus years in prison. She was supposed to die through the death penalty, but in 72, the California Supreme Court overturned the death penalty. So it was reduced to life. Death penalty was later reinstated in California, but they couldn't retroactively change her sentence at that point. And then over the years, she went before a parole board, denied parole, went again, denied, 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 denied. Jerry Brown, when he was governor, never let her out of prison. Gavin Newsom current governor, let's never out of prison. But then recently a uh, court of appeals after a lower court rejected her request 
uh, Court of Appeals said she should be released. And because of the cost and the effort and the time and just the likelihood that it was just not going to, he was not going to succeed, Gavin Newsom said, fuck it, I'm not going to fight it. And so she's out, she's free. And there's a lot of mixed feelings. Like, it's just a lot of controversy over this. And for me personally, it's draws a lot of parallels because, you know, my late wife, Adrian Shelley, her killer was 19 years old, but I want this guy to rot in prison. I hope he died in prison, but I'm still so angry and he's going to be out soon. He's going to be out in, I don't know, eight years, nine years or whatever. So this, that whole question of, is she a threat to society? Is she rehabilitated? Blah, blah, blah. In prison, she got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in, in counseling. She's been working with prisoners. But it's that whole rehabilitative versus punitive argument. There's another question of potentially unequal justice because she served some 54 years, roughly, for murder. Um, and if you look at the Justice Department in the United States, the average, the mean time people serve for murder is 17.5 years. It was very political. I mean, Jerry Brown said no, as you said, and Newsom said no. So uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not defending anything she did, but, you know, <laughs> is the political part of this overruling what is norm? What are the norms? It's just the brutality of those crimes, the depravity of those crimes. The fact that someone like her was so susceptible to being sucked into that kind of atmosphere to where someone could literally tell you to brutally kill someone. But, uh, is, she, is she as dangerous today as she was then? I, I, I don't know. I can't say because I'm not a psychologist. I haven't worked with her in prison. I don't know. But, you know, I, I personally believe... Um, I flipped on the death penalty, but I do believe if you've taken another life, your life should be over one way or another. You should rot in prison. You know, I mean, I understand death penalty and killing innocent people who are in jail wrongly, wrongfully accused, the Innocence Project, all of that. I get it and I'm all for it. So I flipped on the death penalty. I, I'm, I'm really torn because I do agree with you. And if it was my child or my parent, I couldn't imagine having the empathy in my heart to f even comprehend her not being in prison. But the fact that she is going to be released, her life is going to be so difficult. She figured out how to manage in the system, get a bachelor's degree, get her master's degree. You know, she she figured it out. It's not like that on the outside. After being in a place for 54 years, her life is going to be right. so hard, so difficult. I mean, I guess I can take some solace in the fact that her life will be very, very, very sure. challenging. As a 70-something, whatever-year-old <clears throat> woman. But she is actually going to be looking for a job, which, you know me, everything goes through the lens of comedy. So it's like, what's that resume look like? <laughs> very good at stabbing. I think she'll get a job. There's plenty of people who are sympathetic to... Chopping down trees or something. No. So there are people that are going to be sympathetic and are going to help her. And, you know, there are people who believe that part of prison is rehabilitation. And if she's truly rehabilitated, they're going to try and give her an opportunity. Yeah. I, I'm just going to... I'll close this, this chapter out of this conversation by just saying, Jen, you made an interesting point, which I think is really the only point. And that is, it is just so easy for people to talk unless they've been through it. Because that kind of perspective, man, that changes everything. Absolutely. You know, because now it's you. It's your life. And that helps shape a narrative and an opinion that you don't have that luxury if you're just reading about something in a paper and it's somebody else's life, somebody else's house that goes home to horror after someone's brutally murdered. Anyway. That's my soapbox for today. Well, without a doubt, if it's happened, you're going to feel differently. Yeah. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. And please, nobody say, my winner is Leslie Van Houten. Oh, damn. <laughs> my winner, U.S. women. The FDA approves the first over-the-counter birth control pill, which could significantly expand access to contraception. My loser... The House voted to restrict abortion access, 
bar transgender health services and limit diversity training for military personnel, potentially imperiling passage of the annual defense bill as Republicans loaded the measure with conservative policy. My winner is the New York State Democratic Party. On Thursday, the appellate division of the state Supreme Court ruled that the state's congressional maps have to be redrawn again, uh, setting a big potential win for Democrats when this gets redrawn, because now the Supreme Court of New York has become more liberal with a new nominee. And uh, there's a very good chance that there'll be a lot of seats flipped in New York State. My loser is the uh, U.S. national security. We're seeing another victim of the Dodd decision as the Republican House members are adding a measure to the National Defense Authorization Act that is going to prevent the military from providing resources to help service members who must travel outside the state that they're in in order to obtain an abortion, as well as a number of other provisions that are also awful. My winner is lifelong Republican and Trump-appointed FBI Director Christopher Wray, who told House Republicans it's, quote, insane for them to claim he's weaponized the Bureau against conservatives. My loser, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who literally had to be pressured for days into stating that, quote, white nationalists are racists, after saying that they were just American for days. Also for his reprehensible blockade of top military promotions over his personal views on abortion. All right, it's time for our weekly rant. What do Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Elon Musk have in common besides being narcissistic, sociopathic, loser douche nozzles? They all blame everyone but themselves for their misfortunes. None take responsibility for their words and actions. None can admit mistake. None will ever say, I'm sorry, about anything. Let's start with Trump. He's twice impeached, twice indicted, about to be indicted twice more, was found liable of sexual assault, and cost his party virtually every key election in the past six years. He's the most corrupt, treasonous excuse for a politician in American history. But is it Trump's fault? Nope. He blames the DOJ, the FBI, the courts, former aides, bipartisan election officials, Congress, the media, Democrats, Rhino Republicans, Liz Cheney, trans athletes, Pete Davidson, the cast of Sesame Street, and anyone else he can think of. Such a victim. The target of the broadest conspiracy ever. So mistreated. No one's ever been so mistreated. Remember when he said, quote, they always said nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I'm treated worse. Uh, I'm going to go with Lincoln and Kennedy. Then there's DeSantis, whose presidential campaign basically imploded before it began. He's boring, humorless, and relentlessly spews anti-woke, anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. His policies are so oppressive and out of step with Americans that even those in the GOP see them as cringeworthy. His dark, dystopian view of America is fueled by scapegoating, bullying, bigotry, and hate. All of which, by the way, go over really well with suburban moms. But is it DeSantis's fault? Nope. He blames the media, who he claims, quote, does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very clear. No, it's not clear at all. Lastly, there's Musk, who single-handedly destroyed Twitter, gutting ad revenue by 90% and cutting its valuation over 50%. Because this is what happens when a megalomaniac doesn't have smart rocket scientists and automotive engineers building cool shit for him. When your new claim to fame is authoring cool, edgy, crypto-frat-bro douche tweets all day while the much smarter, way more successful Mark Zuckerberg quietly builds the new app that's going to kill yours. But is it Musk's fault? Nope. He blames Democrats, too, and Congress, and Zuckerberg, and, of course, the woke mind virus. Trump, DeSantis, Musk. They're the hat trick of thin-skinned, sore-losing snowflakes. All right, let's bring out Lucas Kuntz. He is a 13-year Marine veteran, national security expert, and antitrust advocate running against Missouri's Republican Senator Josh Hawley. After three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, Lucas was stationed at the Pentagon, where he served on the joint staff to contain the threat of nuclear and chemical weapons around the globe, and later represented the U.S. in arms control negotiations with NATO and Russia. After active duty, he became the National Security Director for the American Economic Liberties Project, a nonprofit which advocates corporate accountability legislation and aggressive enforcement of antitrust regulations. Lucas, welcome into the back room. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me, Will. Yeah, very excited to talk with you. I want to start off with uh, your background, in particular, your childhood. You had some challenges in your family, some health 
issues that your family dealt with, some economic challenges. Why don't you speak to that for a little bit? Well, sure. Yeah. You know, um, I grew up in this working class neighborhood in Jeff City, Missouri, which is in the middle of the state. And uh, and my parents were a typical Missouri story. They got married at 19 and 22. They were in the Catholic Church. They like followed the rules. And so before you knew it, they had a bunch of kids and uh, we're living paycheck to paycheck in uh, kind of your traditional Americana neighborhood. Right. All of us kids running in and out of each other's houses. Uh, people's parents just, you know, kind of everybody watching everybody. And uh, even though we were all broke, um, it was a beautiful place. And, you know, I don't think that I really realized uh, either how great it was or how broke we were until my littlest sister was born. And so she was the fourth kid. And when she was born, she had a heart condition and had to have open heart surgery. And as anyone in, you know, normal America knows, like, when you get a health condition or someone in your family does, or the boiler goes out in your house, your car breaks down, you temporarily lose your job, like you live in paycheck to paycheck, that's that's the end of it for you. You can't make it anymore. And so that's what happened to our family. Um, you know, it was a really tough time. My parents were about two hours away in another town most of the time, St. Louis, the big city where the hospital was, and, uh, and they were going broke and, and we just kind of lost everything. I mean, my parents went bankrupt. Uh, but the the sort of the beautiful thing that I learned from it or experienced was just the way that people, when we're given the power and we have the tools to do it, we can take care of each other. And so the people in that community who, again, like, you know, they didn't have any more money than we had. They passed the plate down at church for us. They brought more food by the house than we could eat. I mean, I remember I remember at one point um, they brought so much tuna casserole, Andy. I remember sitting on my couch at one point and just uh, vividly remember praying like, dear God. Please let lasagna walk through the house tonight because so much tuna casserole there. Um, but it all worked out for us. And 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 it was just, it was a really great thing. And I took away from that, um, you know, the a willingness and a desire to serve my community. I wasn't a very good student in middle school. And I really like, I really took this lesson when my dad sat me down and uh, and kind of told me, you know, you, uh, you've got a second chance in life here that a lot of kids don't get. Like this community took care of our family. And we are going to do something to make them proud of what they did for us. And, uh, and so from that point on, you know, I went in ninth grade, studied hard, uh, graduated valedictorian, was an all-state runner, uh, got into Yale University off Dunklin Street in Jeff City, Missouri. And again, like when I didn't have enough money to go, people in town uh, gave me scholarships. I got a Pell Grant from the government, uh, which again, like uh, when we invest in people, they will pay it back. You know, I got a Pell Grant to go to this dream college, uh, all the way on the coast. And, uh, and my payback, you know, I was looking for something to do. I joined the Marine Corps, did 13 years, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan because this country and my community gave me everything. And it's just, that's, you know, the driving force for me running in this election is the way everyone took care of me being in the Marine Corps, watching us spend $6.4 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that old neighborhood just completely fall apart because the politicians in Missouri abandoned everyday people like us. Mm -hmm. Like the first house I lived in there is an empty lot now. The one I joined the Marine Corps out of is boarded up. It's got no windows. The corner store was boarded up because it was robbed so many times that they couldn't get insurance for it anymore. And there's a reason for that. People made decisions based on their campaign donors to strip communities like the one I grew up in for parts. And it's just, I think it's wrong and it's time some of us took a stand against it. Well, no more tuna casserole would make a great campaign slogan. That's right. I mean, <laughs> so you can have that I one. haven't eaten it since. No <laughs> lie, I have not eaten it since. It's, it says a lot about your campaign and why you're running. So 13 years in the Marines, active duty, you're still in the reserves, a tour of duty in Iraq, two tours in Afghanistan. So basically what we're saying here is Josh Hawley has a lot to teach you about manhood. Oh, well, thank God he wrote a book on it, huh? Right. For $29.99, we can uh, learn all the secrets of masculinity and uh, and how to be real men. Yeah, really. it's kind of strange and sad and bizarre how the Republican Party has turned to where someone who suited up and spent 13 years in the Marines is not the tough guy. And guys like Josh Hawley, who fist-bumped domestic terrorists before an insurrection and then ran for his life through the halls of Congress, like somehow he's the tough one. And don't get me wrong, like if I was in Congress that day and J6 happened, I'd have been running through the halls myself trying to save my own life. But the difference is, I think, 
the next day I wouldn't have forgotten it all and, and then spent two and a half years protecting the guy who orchestrated it all and then go write a book about how to be a man. It's just creepy, man. Like, I mean, writing a book about, so here's the thing. And I hate that I have to say this, but like, you know, my campaign manager was like, you know, you got to read this book, right? <laughs> so that if you debate or whatever else, you'll know what's in it. I was like, oh man, seriously? Like, uh, he's like, well, nobody's going to write a cliff note on it because nobody cares. So you're just going to have to do it. And so uh, uh, don't tell him. I only got through the first 130 pages, but like, uh, that's enough to get the feeling of just how weird and creepy it is. I mean, he goes through characters of the Bible, um, compares himself to them, and then basically says, if you're more like me, you'll be more of a man. Like, like, who writes that? I'm telling you right now, that's not what Missourians want. They don't want this weird creepiness. They don't want someone who wants to control them in the bedroom, in the workplace, in the doctor's office, everything else. Like, we want to be able to, you know, do what we did in our old community. We want people to invest in us so that we can take care of ourselves and make decisions for ourselves. I'm telling you right now, and if we could just, if if there was a world in which every Missourian had to read that book, we would win the election 99% to one. Uh, so, you know, my goal right now is just, we got to let everybody know what who he is and what he's about, like you mentioned. I mean, the dude's a coward and he's a creep. You didn't get uh, not even one tip on how to be a man from those 130 pages? Well, those were all the tips. Be more like Josh. <laughs> it was pretty repetitive. And, uh, and learn how to throw the phrase Epicurean elite around. He loves that one. Wow. Uh, that is a big word. Which who knows what that means. I mean, you got to know Greek history to, to figure that one out. So uh, well, I, I got I got a little story for you. This podcast is recorded in the back room of a retail store up in Hudson Valley. And the name of the retail store is The Epicurean. What? <laughs> well, I, I just blew your mind, didn't I? <laughs> Uh, but no, no, I don't. I don't consider myself an elite, and I certainly didn't take it personally. But you asked a question rhetorically before about like who writes like that, who writes a book like that. You know, who writes a, a book like that? A guy who also claims that Democrats are the ones keeping us men from being men because now we're like forced to play video games and watch porn. That's who writes that. That's some. Creepy oh, and shit. we let women into the workforce. Yeah. Well. We, uh, you know, that's another part of it. What is it about Republicans that are just so obsessed with porn and? trans and lbgtq and genitalia like what is with these people honestly they are obsessed with this shit i mean part of it's i mean holly's a weird dude right like again he wrote this book he does weird stuff all the time uh and it's just it's just part of who he is mm -hmm. uh but i think the other part of it is that his campaign donors are into this right like this is what this is what they want them doing because at the same time, guys like him are literally stripping our communities for parts for them. And, uh, you know, uh, I they're trying to this is this is why this one reason this race is so critical for us. And for me personally, is that, you know, Josh Hawley runs around trying to say that Republicans are the party of working people. Josh Hawley doesn't even know what it means to work. I mean, the dude was a fancy corporate lawyer in D.C. Uh, you know, he went to like some British boarding school for uh, for a year to work while he ate popcorn and watched the Iraq invasion and uh, and then has been fluffing along in this little political world and uh, with a bunch of billionaires funding him. And so um, we are on the front lines, though, in this fight for democracy because he's pushing that. And if we don't push back against it somewhere like Missouri, where we had almost all statewide Democrats up till 2017, uh, we're going to lose big and we're going to lose for a long time. And so, you know, one of my goals is to put out to like make people realize or to talk to people about uh, about how his creepy obsessions on this are a cover for all the bad things he's doing to the rest of us. When he says he's for working people, this is a guy who when he was our attorney general, he fought to make sure that no one could get overtime pay in the state. He talks about, you know, him and J.D. Vance, when the Norfolk Southern uh, derailment happened, we're all like, oh, this is terrible. We need to protect everyday people. When Josh Hawley was the attorney general of Missouri, the first thing he did was disband the environmental protection of the attorney general's office. Like he got rid of that office and then he took money from Norfolk Southern as a result. Like it's absolutely crazy. And, and what we are doing right now is, again, we're fighting every day to remind everybody he's a liar. He's a coward. This is what they are. And in a state like Missouri, uh, we have a very populist streak. We have an opportunity to push back in that. You know, we have people that will vote both sides of the ticket. 
2016, last time we had a Senate race up at the same time as a presidential, uh, you know, Donald Trump won by like 17 points and Jason Kander lost by less than three uh, against a guy who was more popular than Josh Hawley, frankly, you know, a fellow named Roy Blunt. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's exciting to have this opportunity and, and really to be able to push back against these frauds here. Mm -hmm. You ran in uh, the last election and you were defeated in the primary uh, by Bush Valentine, uh, the heiress, the Bush heiress. And what's going to be different this time? Well, sure. You know, what I, what I had to do is I had to figure out um, last time, how does a normal guy who comes from Dunklin Street in Jeff City, Missouri, spent 13 years in the Marine Corps, has not spent a lifetime selling out, uh, how do I raise money to win a campaign uh, for a statewide office, something big like the U.S. Senate? And so it took us a little while to figure that out. And, um, and so we were very out-resourced in that race. Uh, but our message was strong and it got people excited enough that we still almost won despite being outspent so severely. And so uh, uh, by the end of that, though, you know, our message uh, was resonating. And so, you know, one of the things that's most important to me is I don't want to sell out on this path. Right. I don't want to turn into Josh Hawley or or anybody else. And so one of the core core things for me from the very beginning of that last campaign was I don't want to take money from corporate PACs. I don't want to take money from fossil fuel executives, no big pharma executives, no federal lobbyists. Like I had a very long list. And, you know, I went to people who talk about who know how to do campaigns and they all told me, well, that's stupid. You're never going to win that way. And I was like, well, look, like I don't think Democrats are going to win in the Midwest again unless we change that, unless we do something different. And so uh, so I didn't take any money from those. And by the end, you know, we did figure out how to raise the money. We built a record breaking grassroots fundraising movement and we were able to bring that. Uh, apparatus or all those people into this campaign. And so, you know, this time without taking any of that money still, because we still don't do it, uh, we raised, it was like 1.1 million the first quarter, 1.2 the second quarter. Those are both records for Missouri dollars raised. Mm -hmm. And our average donation is like $25. It's like the lowest in the country. And we've, we've been able to do that um, in a way that no one's ever been able to do before. When I say records, that's record for Democrat or Republican. And yeah, well, so you're, you're, known as a you're known yeah. as a prolific fundraiser. I think you'd raised over $5 million for the last campaign? We did. And a lot of that was the end. And the other thing is, you know, when you're doing a campaign the first time, uh, you have to spend a lot, you know, if, if I were an heir to a fortune and could just write checks, that those are very different dollars than ones where you have to spend on a staff, you have to spend on uh, buying email addresses, reaching out to people who've never heard of you before and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And so, uh, and all that snowballed into this one. And we're really proud of what we've been able to set up this time. What are the key issues central to your campaign? I mean, I think we need to change who has power in this country. I mean, Josh Hawley is the exact example of the wrong person having power. He's a guy who, when he thinks it's going to get him power, he's out there pumping his fist. And the second things get real, you know, he's skittering out the back door. I can tell you right now, if any of us had behaved like that in Iraq or Afghanistan, we'd have been court-martialed, right? That's not the type of character you want leading things. And, uh, and for me, it's really the corruption that he brings to this state and, and the way that that guts us uh, that I want to go against. And so for me, you know, corruption is a huge issue. I don't think that members of Congress should own stocks. Um, I can tell you a story about that. We had a reporter phone. Uh, people are always like, how's corruption a big issue, right? And I was like, I'll tell you how corruption is a big issue. You know, we had a reporter following us around. I was in the Boot Hill, Missouri, uh, southeast Missouri a little while ago. And uh, this reporter is asking people, you know, what do you like the most about Lucas's campaign? What's the thing you like the most? Uh, I had no idea what they were going to say. And I was shocked, though, because the answer uh, that several people gave was, we like that he's so strong against members of Congress owning stocks because we were tired of them making decisions based on their stock portfolio rather than us. It happens again and again and again. And uh, it's an important issue here because people just feel betrayed uh, by the way the system works. Um, you know, for me, that's why I don't take money from corporate PACs. I think they should be abolished altogether. That's a hugely popular opinion here as well. Um, and just, you know, there's a bunch along that road that we don't have to get into right now, but that's important for me. Uh, another one is that we have a competitive economy. You know, Missouri small businesses have been absolutely destroyed by corporate consolidation, uh, much of it led by Wall Street, M&A firms, and things like that. And so, um, you know, people are always like, well, does does that resonate with people? You know, does does... Does anti-monopoly resonate with people or does going against corporate power, like consolidating corporate power uh, matter? And, and, and yes, like because we're a huge ag state. And if you talk to any farmer, they understand that they are under the thumb of monopolies. If you, if you talk to people who 
raise livestock for a living. You know, they're dealing with massive corporations like Smithfield or JBS who are violating this uh, Packers and Stockyards Act, violating our antitrust laws and really squeezing the farmer out uh, for their own profits. And and like these aren't even American companies like JBS is Brazilian. Smithfield's owned by China. And uh, it just really pisses people off. And uh, and you see it in, in urban America, too. I mean, I was in St. Louis the other day at this uh, at a I guess you call it an old folks home, uh, you know, a residential treatment facility for seniors. And uh, and the woman there who runs it, her name was Ollie, uh, who, by the way, is like 85 years old. I was like, how you run this place? You're older than everybody in here. <laughs> Uh, she's a tough lady. And so this is a, an all black neighborhood in St. Louis. And uh, and Ollie is like, you know what I like about your campaign? I like your anti-massive corporate power uh, uh, positions. And I was like, oh, OK, Ollie, tell me about that. How did that resonate with you? And she's like, well, here's the deal. We used to get the Medicaid money from the state because, you know, most of my patients are on Medicaid and we would spend that money locally. We could keep that money in the in the community, a very impoverished community. We had a sh- local chef. We would buy the food locally and it was really good for our economy and it, and it helped everybody out. It was like one of the few things that we could rely on and lift up our community. And she's like, and then this massive corporation from, I think it was Florida, came in, lobbied the state government, told them it would be more efficient if all the food for all facilities like this around the state just came from them. And uh, and and it worked. She was like, they did some sort of contractual thing. And now I have to buy all my food from this company that's out of state. She's like, how's that more efficient? Our money leaving to go out of state, even if it like costs a little less, the money is leaving the state. That's bad for us. I can't keep it in the community. And she's like, and by the way, the sodium content is so high on all this prepackaged stuff that half the people in here can't even eat it. And she's like, that is when corporate power comes in and just absolutely destroys the little guy and harms our communities. And, you know, you just get story after story like that all around the state. So, you know, competition is one. And then the last one would be control. We've already talked about that. I mean, this dude wants to control you everywhere. Yeah. In 2020, you joined the American Economic Liberties Project, which fights for corporate accountability and enforcement of antitrust legislation. Are you still involved with that group? No, I I stepped down in January to to run the race this time. So uh, I I stepped down last campaign uh, during most of the campaign and then did again this time. Just, um, you know, it's a nonpartisan organization. Uh, We work with all sorts of people, and uh, and it's best that it stays that way because I truly believe in that mission and wouldn't want to um, screw anything up for them. You know, the, the thing about Josh Hawley is that Josh Hawley is a traitor. I mean, he is a traitor. The Republican Party just seems full of traitors from their ex-president on down, the guy who they want to be president again. He's a traitor. And so support of him and denial of his attempts to overturn an election and overthrow a government makes them traitors. How do you get that message across? Is that still tricky landscape? You're a guy who fought to protect American democracy for 13 years. You were in the Marines. The Republican Party used to be the party of national defense, the party of the military. How do we swing that conversation back so that the people in Missouri all over the country who are Republican go, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is the guy who's promising to protect our democracy, not these guys like Hawley who are protecting traitors. And who is a traitor? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think they're doing that right now. Like, you know, Josh Hawley was on the Senate Armed Services Committee and he got yanked from the Senate Armed Services Committee. He got pulled off by his own party, the Republicans, because he was holding up all the DOD nominations for whatever reason he, he felt like at any time. And now you see a copycat, Tommy Tuberville, doing the same thing. And, you know, as, as Lieutenant Colonel of the Marine Corps Reserves, and again, I speak in my personal capacity, not for the Marine Corps here, but like, we don't have a commandant for the first time in 100 years. That's the you, you mean you, you mean a, You mean a commandant. Did you hear him say that the okay. other day, T- Tuberville, when he was talking? No, did he say that? Yeah, he said, there's, oh, you know, geez. there's nobody in the commandant's house. And it's like, you don't even know how to pronounce <laughs> this. What are you talking about? Well, this is just it. Like, it's these showboat fakers uh, who who don't know. They they really don't know anything. And like, you know, again, Holly got pulled off for not knowing that. I would suspect they'll do the same thing with Tuberville. The problem is, who replaced Holly? It was Tuberville, right? right. It's like the, this is the, the the pool is pretty shallow on who they can uh, pull from here who would know anything or actually care. And uh, and so, you know, for us, it's, you know, this this is a, just another good example with with us not having a commandant. Um, the fact that, you know, when we do negotiations overseas right now, I used to. So when I was at the Pentagon, I was an arms control negotiator during my last, last tour. I represented the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. 
And uh, I can tell you right now, you don't want to be sending in lower ranking people when there are other countries involved, like China sends in a four star general and you're like, well, sorry, we don't have any because I can't get nominated. So, uh, you know, future hopeful partner, here's our one star general or our colonel. I hope that's good enough for you. Like people are going to notice that that's real. It makes it look like America doesn't care. And uh, and and that's going to have real national uh, national security implications for us for a very long time. I mean. I negotiated as a major because of weird negotiate because of weird circumstances uh, overseas with NATO and at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And I can tell you right now, when the U.S. sent me as a major, a lot of people were like, Russia has an admiral or a general that you guys are having this major sit across from. That's a little weird. And it's something that I would have to overcome. And we shouldn't be putting military officers around the around the world in that position where they have to work kind of out of that hole. And that's exactly what Tommy Tuberville is doing for an issue that's completely unrelated. Like he's mad at policymakers and he's punishing us. I, I think the, the party, the Republican Party, and, and a good chunk of the country started to take that crazy turn of uh, 2004 when Bush ran against Kerry. And Kerry was a decorated war hero, commanded a swift boat down the Mekong Delta, probably the, one of the most dangerous missions you can have in Vietnam. And somehow the Republicans succeeded then in turning Kerry into the guy who cannot protect America. And Bush, who went AWOL, he's the tough guy. He's the war hero. He's going to protect America. And with Trump, it just accelerated to a place where it's kind of insane. You look at like the hearing yesterday with FBI Director Christopher Wray, and he himself said, wait a minute, guys, I was appointed by Trump and I'm a lifelong Republican. And for you to tell me I'm weaponizing the FBI against conservatives is insane. How do we get from this place of insanity back to some sort of sanity where just, you know, are they gone? Are those I mean, days gone forever? No, I think a lot of it's going to be retail politics and having candidates that contrast really well against people like Holly, which is, you know, our situation right now. Because I can tell you right now, when I go into rural Missouri um, or suburban Missouri or anywhere else, like, I'm fine going in there. And I lead with, I'm Lucas Kuntz, 13-year Marine veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm running for U.S. Senate. And you know, it's, I think it's different than 2004 because a lot of people, I mean, you sort of mentioned how people are conditioned to think one way or another, but right now, a lot of people are conditioned to, you know, no matter where they are on the spectrum, thank you for your service and are willing to talk to you. And once we're able to open the door up and have that conversation, uh, we get a real shot at convincing people or at least making them like you. And so, you know, uh, it's an opportunity that you don't have very often uh, where you've got a Democrat in a state that's shifted red running against a Republican who nobody likes. I mean, this guy's approval is lower in Missouri than his disapproval. Like, <laughs> that's an accomplishment in Missouri, right? He's a Republican who's got no negatives being run against him, and he's still more disliked than he is liked. Like, that's crazy. And he's achieved that just on the strength of his personality, right? He's done that just by being himself. And so uh, it's it's just um, it's a real opportunity where we can contrast against that. Talk about the way I grew up, which, again, is a way that reaches a lot of everyday Missourians, because, frankly, most Missourians right now are paycheck to paycheck. Their daddies didn't send them to a fancy private school for high school like his did. Right. They didn't go work at a fancy corporate law firm. And uh, and they know when I talk about uh, going bankrupt for medical bills, they have either lived that or that's their worst fear. And uh, and we're in a position uh, where we're able to reach people just on those issues, just on kind of where I grew up and what I come from. And uh, and again, on the military piece, I think it's just it's helpful right now that we uh, that people are sort of bought in uh, in a way that they were never bought in for Vietnam vets. I mean, the last thing you would want to be in America for about 20 years there was a Vietnam vet. Uh, I know I used to. So, so I'll tell a quick story. Like when, when we were kids, you know, we didn't have any money, but my mom and dad always wanted to give back to the community. And so we would go volunteer at the parish soup kitchen uh, twice a month, whenever they had it. And so uh, when we were there, the guy who ran the kitchen would always ask the kids, hey, what chores do you guys want to do? And uh, my, little, my, my sister and I, we'd always be like, oh, we want to do the dishes. We want to do the dishes. And this guy who ran the kitchen was like, what these kids? Why do the dishes like? They can set the table, they can greet people, and they're always doing that. But the thing was, like, you know, at church, we had, they had dishwashers. And so we thought we were just skipping this dude because <laughs> just take the dishes, like, throw them in there and walk away. We're like, yeah, I think we're doing a chore. Like, like, washing the dishes is like 45 minutes of hard labor at home. 
And, uh, and so, um, and so here's the thing though, that guy remembered that. And two years later, when he renovated the kitchen at his house, he took his old dishwasher, put it in a big blue pickup truck, brought it by our house and had it installed for us. Uh, now that guy was a veteran in Vietnam from Vietnam. He was a Marine officer in Vietnam. He's the reason I joined the Marine Corps. And I uh, you know he would take me down to the Marine Corps League when I was younger and I would listen to these guys talk about Vietnam. And I can tell you right now, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but like they went through it when they came home. And I think that had had their experiences not been so bad coming home and our nation hadn't felt such guilt, it would have been different for us now. Um, uh, But because of that, a lot of people have taken care of us. Every time I came home, we were greeted at the airport um, and it was, you know, a beautiful thing to return to our country. And uh, and and all that to say that um, I think that's very different than what John Kerry experienced in 2004. I think it's uh, it's an area where people do respect veterans, especially in places like Missouri right now. And again, you know, I've mentioned this offhand before, but like when Josh Hawley was interested in the Iraq war, he his roommate like he there's stories on this. He literally popped popcorn and watched people his age get killed over there and thought that it was a fun thing. And we have a very high veteran population especially from those wars. And I just tell you right now, man, that's not cool. No, and it's not cool. But he also worships a guy who called ducking STDs his own personal Vietnam. Well, the fun thing is here, you know, voters are willing to split their ticket. And so Jason Kander in 2016 was an army veteran of Afghanistan. And again, you know, he, he, he lost by less than three when Donald Trump won by 17. We don't have to close at 17 points anymore. Like we do as well as Jason Cannon did, and we're going to win. It's just that simple. Missouri's, you know, Clever Caskill, you've had Democratic senators, so can be done. I was going to ask you, do you think we're at an inflection point where people who voted for Trump but weren't in the cult uh, are tired of him? They're ready for something else. Are you seeing that your chances in Missouri today are greater than three years ago, four years ago? I mean, I think they're probably even better than Jason's in 2016. And, and you know, kind of the context I'll give you for that is uh, people in this state, uh, whether it's, you know, Trump or somebody else, like they are tired of not having any power. They're tired of being controlled. And we have been voting on ballot measures in a way that is rebelling against that entirely. And so when I talk about that, I mean, I'll give you the example. So people will be surprised at some of the things that Missourians have voted for on statewide ballot initiative over the last several years. So we increased the minimum wage, $5 over the federal level. Holly was against that. We passed that by a pretty good margin. We overturned the anti-union right to work legislation, 68% to 32%, like massive margin. uh, We overturned that at at the ballot. Uh, We voted for first medical and then recreational marijuana. Again, over all these guys, Uh, we expanded Medicaid against the legislature and against Josh Hawley and, uh, and, you know, a couple other things. And so what you'll see is just uh, people here are tired of it. They're trying to take back power and they need to see a Democratic candidate who makes them feel like he's going against that, like he wants to take back power for them. And again, that's why we don't, that's another reason we don't take money from corporate PACs, no federal lobbyists, anybody like that, because we need to show that we only stand for the people of Missouri and uh, investment in our communities and taking that power back. And uh, and Josh Holly doesn't stand for any of that. So it's a real, we have had a major inflection point at the ballot box already on ballot initiatives. And this campaign's goal is to convert that into, you know, a candidacy election, uh, which I think we should be able to do just based on, based on the numbers and my contrast against him. I know you're a busy guy and you probably got a lot of campaign to do. So I have one last question, which is a not political but it is a window into the soul. So give me your top five musical yep. artists of all time. Oh, boy. Uh, well, I do love George Strait. So I have to put George Strait probably uh, right up there. Uh, Don Williams, Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, I, those are my top three. Uh, after that, it's a pretty big smattering. I mean, I like Merle Haggard. I like Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, a lot mm-hmm. of other. We were, uh, yeah, we were classic country in the house growing up. My mom was really into like John Pride which uh, I think he's cool, but I wouldn't put him in my top five. But uh, but yeah, those are the type of, uh, of people that I've listened to over the years. Well, Lucas, this has been great. I wish you a lot of luck. Is there a website or somewhere you want to send people to to check you out and Yeah, support? that'd be great. You go to lucaskuntz.com. So it's K-U-N-C-E. You can follow us on Twitter at lucaskuntz.mo. Uh, same same uh, tag on Instagram, lucaskuntz.mo. And really just, I mean... 
my last word is this is the front line in the fight for democracy in our country. We had Democrats elected up through 2017. Many of them, our last statewide Democrat just lost, left office this year. Uh, it's a place where people are willing to vote for both sides. We need the support. We need you to spread the word to people in Missouri if you know them. And, uh, and if we win this one, we can start a cascade effect both in this state and around the country, which would be very game-changing for our country going forward. Well, we'll certainly follow the campaign and hope you'll come back and give us an update uh, sooner than later. Good luck to you. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. Take care. That's episode 94. If you like what you've heard, email or message and help spread the word. And follow or subscribe and you won't miss a thing. When we post a new episode, you'll get a ring. Thanks, co-producer, co-editor, and engineer Maddie Rosenberg. And co-producer Jan Hamoud. Cricket Langell for amazing design. And Andy Hollander for his tune. Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the back room. Thank you, our guest, Lucas Coombs. We hope you'll join us again next time. So keep your eyes in Washington and Hollywood and your own backyards. And have yourself a great week. <laughs>